everyone. It's Rachel. And this is Carl. We wanted to take a moment to acknowledge the six Asian women who were murdered this past week in Atlanta. And um, I don't know about you guys, but we have been feeling a whole bunch of feelings. And so we thought we would just check in real quick, starting with us. So, Carl, how are you feeling? I am feeling shocked, numb, afraid, angry. I think all emotions are valid at this point. Mm. I feel numb and shocked because of the media and uh-huh. honestly how they've treated this story and how surreal it feels to be, you know, it was only this past summer that we had George Floyd and the protests and it feels really surreal to be on say the other side to Mm -hmm. be this targeted part of the targeted racial group um, as part of this hate crime i feel afraid because two questions i have is as an asian american will i ever be accepted in america will my family ever be more than just perpetual foreigners Mm -hmm. and i feel angry because asian americans have been silenced for so long and asian american bodies have always been invisible, uh, especially Asian American women. Asian American women have always been treated as uh, objects and have been treated as disposable. So, yeah, those are some of my feelings. Mm. How are you feeling? Hmm. Honestly, I am all over the place, and I also find myself struggling to find the quote right answer to this question um i think the most honest answer is all of the above so numb afraid angry very angry also kind of deja vu and i think i would add cynical i feel cynical um about all the momentum and traction that this is gathering i feel like everyone's just gonna forget in a couple weeks And we'll be back to life as terrible, normal. (laughs) So yeah, I'm also really tired. Did I say that? I'm tired. That's all. Yeah. I hear you. Thank you. I want to use the next 30 seconds as an opportunity to take a moment of silence for the six Asian women that lost their lives this past week. Um, or for anyone listening, if you want to take the next 30 seconds as an opportunity to do your own check-in, whether that's checking in with yourself or checking in with um, a friend. Yeah. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back with the podcast after this 30-second silence. Hey everyone, this is Carl. 
you're listening to the Misfortune Cookies podcast. In today's episode, Lindy talks to Alex about his racial identity as a son of Vietnamese refugees. We're honored that Alex was willing to chat with us, and we really hope you enjoy this conversation. Hi there! Welcome to the Misfortune Cookies podcast. Hey, what's up, yo? What's going on? Alex, you have an amazing story, and we're so excited for you to come on the show. So today we're going to be talking about your experiences as a Vietnamese-American, and in particular about how you ended up identifying more with the Chicano community than the Vietnamese community in your childhood, and how you're dealing with questions of race and identity now, and, you know, that whole journey, uh, all the different things that have caused pain, but also hope along the way. Yeah, for sure. So I'd love for you to start wherever you want to start. Well, just a brief background. My name is Alexander Nguyen. I was born and raised in East San Jose. My parents are considered refugees, I believe. Uh, my dad came around 1991 through 1993, and my dad was a veteran in the Vietnam War. You know, I'm Vietnamese-American, but what's interesting about me is I never really connected to the community because I never really spoke the language. I felt growing up, I was pushed away from them. That, you know, you don't speak the language, you know, you're not one of us, right? That just happened so many times in my life. And I felt, you know what, I don't, I don't see myself as a Vietnamese no more, right? Because language is a big part of identity. And I felt they're showing me a way I don't want to belong to them. And with that barrier, I started to connect more to the Mexican community in San Jose. But, you know, the path where I am today is pretty painful, very difficult. And I grew up in a very low-income community. Average is about... $30,000 a year for families. I think for my family, it was about maybe 10 to 20 kids in the Bay Area, right? We live in Section 8 housing, and it was a struggle. You know, there was, there was gangs, right? And my friends were, some of them were killed or they went to prison. Mm. I think living in that environment was difficult because it, it influenced me who I was. And um, I actually wanted to be a gang member growing up. So I used to wear uh, a bandana around my mouth, right, and like snapbacks. <laughs> and I used to wear like clothing, right, just to really see as one of them. Hmm. Yeah. What about being in a gang was appealing to you? Yeah, you know, growing up, it was hard to find a, I think just the word love, right, it's mm. pretty hard, but I felt I, I wanted to belong. I wanted to find, you know, a relationship, right, mm. during that time. Yeah, even as a kid, I still yeah. wanted to belong a relationship, right? No disrespect to my parents and everything or friends, but I just felt I didn't really have that belonging or that love from someone, right? Mm. So did you ever join a gang? <laughs> no, no. I, I never I never joined a gang. Uh, there's a phrase called jumping in, I think. You, when you get jump in, um, I think you had to go to like a fight or something to join a gang or something. I don't know. I, again, I, I never I, I never joined one, but I seen to be in a gang, people get you know beat up at times, right? And so I personally never, never did. But at the same time, I'm empathetic to my friends that did went to problems in my neighborhood. I'll always defend them because people don't realize, you know, we're not, we don't want to just join gangs for, for no reason, right? There's a lot of societal problems that we face, right? And I want people to recognize that we just live in bad uh, circumstances. Yeah, there's always more to the story than just isolated incidents. So I, I know you're not in that environment anymore. When did you leave? I remember, I highly remember this. One day, I was going out to my friends and they were just disrespecting women for some reason. I, I don't know, I forgot the context of it, but they are just disrespecting women. And they were like, this is, how, this is what we do. And I was like, no, as a kid, I was like, nah, that, that's not how I roll. Like, I, 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 can't, I can't do that. Like, 
that makes no sense, right? And I don't know how I knew that as a kid. And it was that moment I was like, you know what? I'm out. Mm. I can't. I don't want to be friends with you uh, for a disrespecting woman like that. So that's why I left that gang environment. But the neighborhood, I never left the neighborhood. The neighborhood is still, I'm still in this neighborhood till this day. Uh, growing up, I hella wanted to get out of this neighborhood. You know, I was like, mm. well, because you know, I was told to get out, to get out of this neighborhood, right? And it's, it's a lot of crime and, and gangs and policing. And I was told success is when you prosper and you leave this neighborhood. Mm. But later on, my college years, I was like, no, I nurture the community I, I grew up in for the future generations, right? And I started to love it over time, right? And I started to see the beauty of my neighborhood. You know, there is a lot of things that happen. I really value the community aspect of my community, right? Like, we could just talk to neighbors or if we need help, just calling someone else, right? And I really respected that. And I remember the memories of making food, right? Food brings people together, yeah. right? And, you know, growing up with my Mexican homies with food, right? I remember as a kid, their mom used to, like, call me, hey, like, like over here. And um, we used to make uh, tortillas, right? Tortillas, but by hand and, and you know if y'all never made tortillas by hand it is, it is some work you know you have to put like some mineral lime I don't know I forgot and then and you have to put like did they call it maize or something and you have to like wait a day and you have to grind it with a, with a grinder and like that's when you went to flour and everything I just remember those memories growing up and I appreciate uh, those memories I always uh, cherish oh that's that's really sweet that's really precious you know you know neighborhoods like that where people are even telling you to get out the fact that you have chosen to stay speaks volumes. It tells me so much about how much love and joy you found in your relationships and, you know, how connected you feel to this community that took you in. And, you know, it's, it's very like circle of life, like paying it forward or something where people in your neighborhood helped you and then you came back to help them. And it's it's all just so beautiful. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um... Like I was born and raised here. Yeah, maybe it's not to go somewhere else, but no, I really, I really enjoy it. I really enjoy living in, in my neighborhood of San Jose. You know, just I remember as a kid, I wanted to help my community out because I, I saw my community from a very deficit lens. I was like, well, I gotta fix all you know, all these things that are happening and you know, we're poor and all this stuff, and I wanted to help them out any way possible. So that's from my childhood. But in 2016, 2017, that's when things become downhill for me, where everything just exploded. Hmm. What happened? <laughs> I was in a relationship, and I thought it was going good, but you know, it didn't work out, right? And no, no disrespect to the person. You know, she's a great person, and uh, it made me realize there's a lot of work I had to do. It was during that time, from 2016 to 2017, they started to become down because after the relationship broke off in 2017, two months later, I found out my, my mom had cancer. You know, she had a, I remember the story where she, she had pain on her, uh, on her side, right? We thought it was appendix, right? And I remember I was hearing the words from my dad, hey, your mom has, has tumors, has tumors. And um, mm. I got a call from my, my dad that she has cancer. And mm. I was telling my dad, well, what, what stage? And he, he didn't say, he didn't say the stage. And I knew, but he, he always said, oh, I, I don't know. He always said, oh, I, I don't know. I, I never found out, right? And I felt, I felt he was just hiding it. Or maybe just the language barrier, right? Because I don't have the, the language for him. But 
you uh well for me i was i kind of knew it's maybe stage four and mm. i saw everything just going down or um i was dealing with, with battles with, with relationship right and then for my mom and i i really saw life as pretty pretty messed up it was sad and mm. i feel right there the cumulation of all the, the events that happened in my life this is the like this is the moment that that's that broke me the most mm. and i didn't realize it till till that till that time right and uh, i felt devastated i started to feel a lot of sadness a lot of loneliness uh i started to drink a bit and i felt i was going with my life right? i was mm. failing my classes and I, I didn't know what to what to do anymore mm, wow it sounds like such a dark place. I'm, I'm so sorry that you had to go there. What was it like for you to start uh, seeing the light at the end of the tunnel? Well, for me, I think during that time, my mom was having cancer. I started to go a bit to therapy. And uh, I wasn't ashamed. I wasn't ashamed to go to therapy. You know, um, I knew I needed help because I, I knew things maybe had to take a big toll on me. and. A lot of friends were really worried, like, I might, I might kill myself, mm. right? Because um, my whole body, I felt pains, right? Like, I can feel, inter- like, just everything hurting my body from my fingertips, right? And mm. there's times I, I felt just slashing or, st- or stabbing my body or just relief the pain. Mm. And, and but besides with therapy, uh, I look back to ethnic studies. That's when I took my first ethnic studies class at De Anza, and... I remember learning about death. We learned about death in a class, the whole class period. Like, there, I, I don't know any other class that does that, right? <laughs> right? Yeah. Right, so I learned about death in the class period. And when my mom was having cancer, I was like remembering that that lesson about death. And I knew for me, it's just time to acknowledge my mom will go probably in the future. Mm. And so that's just the, the start on how I was healing during the time my mom was having cancer. I look back to ethnic studies a lot on um, how those classes were just so healing for me. Hmm. That's beautiful. How did you decide to first take that class? Well, that's a, that's a very good uh, question because I took the class by accident. <laughs> so I, I got picked out from a, from a university in the Bay Area and I was, I was, oh, I got to find a school. So I went to De Anza College. This is the Cupertino. I got to pick random classes, right? And I saw Intro to Chicano, Chicano Studies. And I was like, oh, okay. Yeah, I grew up in San Jose. I, I know a lot about the, the community in San Jose. It turns out I didn't really know much. <laughs> you know? And I picked the class and I was like, whoa, like, this is amazing. Like, I thought, this is life-changing, right? It was very life-changing to unlearn and relearn what I thought I knew. Mm. Oh, I think it would be good to establish what is ethnic studies, right? And the definition of that, people don't know. Uh, I mean, I'll be honest, same time, I don't really know, like, true definition of ethnic studies, but people people will say it's like an interdisciplinary study of studying Asian Americans, Chicanx, Latinx, or Native Americans, or Black African Americans who survived or resisted settler colonialism, racism, very uh, structural systems. And within ethnic studies, I feel the value of humanization and consciousness is their work. Humanization really values love and respect and hope and consciousness really seeing what's happening in the world. 
after my relationship with ethnic studies, I started to take a more ethnic studies class because I was a biology major when I went to college. And when I saw like, this is interesting, right? I'm really digging it. And I saw the progress of what I was doing. I felt maybe this is it because I told myself this, if biology wasn't going to work out, ethnic studies is my next path. And with my mom having cancer, it wasn't working out. And I was like, well, it's time to go to ethnic studies. And um, I'm really enjoying it. Yeah. You were saying that in the classes you had to unlearn and relearn things you thought you knew. What were some of those things? You know, my community cares about education right? and the stereotypes. People had that stereotype that you know, Latinx or Latino, Latina, Mexicans don't care about education. That's, that's just not true. And to really relearn, unlearn the concept of racism and race and ethnicity, right? And nationality. And I'm still thinking about those terms. Like, what are those? So I think for me, it's a really the main part was the stereotypes I grew up with, right? Mm, yeah. In terms of your identity and upbringing, I mean, you know, come from a Vietnamese family, but then you didn't feel a sense of belonging with that community. And, and you found this other Chicano community that isn't your biological identity, but it almost becomes your ethnic identity. And you know, how yeah, have you yeah. wrestled with those two different forms of identity, you know, your Vietnamese and Chicano identities in one? Yeah. <laughs> I get those questions a lot. Uh, because some people in the community, right, literally in the Mexican community, is like, hey, you ever identify yourself as a Chicano? And I was like, nah, I never said that. And they're like, wait, what? Like, really? Like, oh, yeah, I never said I was a Chicano, right? Interesting fact is growing up, I would say that I'm a Mexican, right, or I'm Chinese. Mm. I would say that as a as a way to put a barrier against the Vietnamese community that never appreciated me. And mm. I thought, well, I would say I'm Mexican, right? Because they appreciate me more, you know? But later, I don't, I don't say I'm Mexican no more. But I think... To battle those identities, it was very difficult, I believe, because I don't see myself as Mexican in my blood. I don't see that. My blood is Vietnamese. My parents were Vietnamese. My ancestors are Vietnamese. But being the Mexican community in San Jose, my roots are there. I'll say that, right? My roots are in the community. I legitly grew up with my homies are Mexican, right? Like the food, like mole, pozole, you know, this is those foods or the music or the, the culture, the history. I grew up with that and I realized why not embrace both? Yeah. Right? Like, yeah, you know, it was after my mom passed away, I I was questioning what happened, and I decided I think it's time to heal. Mm. It's time to stop all this. It's time to focus on myself and mental health, and it was time to me to learn learn my roots. Mm. During that time, I was entering new school at San Jose State. You know, my mom passed away in July, at school in August. <laughs> so you know the difficulties right there, right? And. Mm. Uh, I remember going to the first day of school. I was like, man, I hate this school. This school is too big, you know? And, and like, I, I hated it, but I love I started to love it because I started connected to the Chicano, Chicano, Chicanx community, right? Really saw solidarity within them and started to win, like, scholarships and really academically. July 2019 comes, and I just got more curious, right? I just got really curious. I learned the history on the Vietnam War, and... I was curious, learning from a Chicano perspective on the Vietnam War. The more I got interested in learning the war, the more I got interested in learning about my people. Mm. We are more than our war, we're more than our traumas. And I really wanted to see the people, the origin stories of our people, the, the, the mythologies, right? the folklore, whatever, the food. And this is when I told myself, I'm Vietnamese, y'all. I was like, no, I felt so proud that I'm Vietnamese, right? Like, even though I don't know the language, being Vietnamese is more than a language because to me, when someone says, you know, I've been to me because you don't know language, that is the most disrespectful thing you can say uh, to someone. Mm, yeah. 
Wow, it, it sounds like it really was healing for you to re-engage with your culture. You walk me through a little bit of your healing process. Yeah, I think for me, to, to first acknowledge what I went through, right? I think the first step is always to acknowledge what happened in your life to try to heal, right? And there's, you know, there's different ways people heal, but for me, uh, there's a phrase called cultura cura, right? It's Spanish. Maybe it's culture cures. And culture really did cure me. And I feel just learning about who I was, like my daddy, like really to the Vietnamese history, right? The history, besides the war, right? Besides the war, that was just healing for me. It's just, just for me though, right? I just saw the connection that, you know, these are my people, the origin stories, right? What's so origin story? So what is that? There's a term called cosmology. Right? That's, you know, that's, that's a fancy term, but origin story, like, you know, like, I think every culture has a story like, okay, where, where do your people come from? You know, the myths, right? Just learn about the myths, like, or the, well, myths or folklore, whatever. It, it, it was just healing just to, just to see that, like, well, this is cool, right? And I was really happy just to learn about that history, right? So that's one part of, of healing, but the second part is, again, is just the community, right? There, there's a center called the Chicano Latinx Student Success Center at San Jose State. Just being so active in that center was just so healing for me because I really, you know, I really connected with the, the Chicano community in, in San Jose, well, in the in San Jose State. For me, that was just so fulfilling to connect to, to these people, right? Another one is indigenous healing circles where I have a men's circles, right? Where we talk about our baggage, our gifts, and we have, uh, you know, what baggage are you carrying today or just past two weeks or with a gift, right? Like drinking, drinking water, that's a gift, right? Some people say, you know, just for me to be alive or for me to just drink water, it's a blessing, right? That's a blessing to have and that they to really talk to a circle about the challenges and the beauty we, we have, that, that helped me a lot. Oh, that's great. That's really beautiful. You know, it's amazing that you didn't have to do this alone. Like you could have those places where you could really be honest about some of the things that you were you know, going through or thinking about and having people who are right there with you trying to figure it out together. Uh, that's really powerful. As, as you were kind of healing and trying to find your way back to this community, what did it look like for you to feel connected to them? I, I think it was mostly internal uh, mindset that I was reconnecting to them to really learn about the war. For me, growing up, I didn't really understand the war. I, I knew my dad was in it, and I know there were some events we go to that I didn't understand until growing up, but the war, I realized, created trauma for my people. And the trauma, I would have dreams as a kid. I wake up panicking, right? And I think realizing that more till today, like what was those dreams and what does that mean for me? When I used to ask my dad about the war, he would he would mention it. He was really open to it till my adult years. And how I found out more about the war, I, I looked, uh, there was this book, the Vietnam War book on the shelf. And I took to the book and the first page, uh, it's a famous photo, 1968. I think it's the Tet Offensive. And it was a general pointing a gun to one of the quote-unquote civilians. But later, the, the story behind that is he was actually a, a VC, or they call it like a vic, Vicom. So that's when I first got really interested. And it wasn't until 2016, 17, 18, I started to get more interested in the Vietnam War. Your dad fought in the war? Oh, uh, yes. So my dad was a, he was a lieutenant at the, the age of 19 or 20. And after the war ended in 1975, he was in the, uh, they call it the re camp, but to be honest, it's a concentration camp. Mm. Hearing hear about the war is just seeing the trauma the war has made to the Vietnamese people. It was very hurtful for me. Like, I was, I was upset, you know, I was really upset. I didn't really know this history. I didn't learn it. And it's, it's very hard to comprehend with words on how I felt learning about the Vietnam War. But I, I, I got really interested on, okay, what else than war? Because 
I don't want to see us that just, like I said, we're more than a war. But 2019, I did a, a veterans project talking about intergenerational trauma with the Vietnamese veterans and the Chicano veterans of Vietnam War because I wanted to show our stories that's not really heard of. And so my plan was like, oh, okay, let's have two, two communities. Right? But how could these two communities be a solidarity about the war? Uh, that, that did not work out. Uh, that was very more, it was very difficult to do. My people did not like the anti-war movement. That was a very different situation. I, I didn't really know about that during that time. And I saw the split between that. But at the same time, I think it was still good to know the stories. And I, mean, I, like, I talked to my dad about the war and he opened up a lot. He opened up a lot more about the war, right? Everything, like, any question I can give, right? He's just like, okay, this and that. And he was, maybe he would write it down at times. There's a thing I did, uh, I think it was 2020, I believe, where I submitted like a blog post to the Vietnamese American Roundtable. And I I just felt more connected with the community a bit there. But there there is some tensions uh, still with the, the Vietnamese community. Huh. What was that blog post about? Yeah, if I can remember, it was talking about my dad's experience in the war. The war still happening in our minds. My, one of my favorite authors, uh, Vitan Nguyen, he said in his book, Nothing Ever Dies, he said, all wars are fought twice, one on the battlefield and one on the memory. And I was speaking about how I feel the war was still happening in the community and in my dad's mind and within myself, because a lot of times they were talking about the Vietnam War. Uh, anything with politics is always about the war. And growing up, if I know this for, for sure, they would talk about uh, overthrowing the, the Vietnamese government to get the, the country back, you know? <laughs> wow, yeah. I know we're right now we're in a pretty tense political climate. What has that been like for you in the Vietnamese community? <laughs> That's a great question. Oh, wow. It is very difficult. I, I feel... I love my people. I love my Vietnamese people. Right? I, I love them. But it is hard to have a dialogue, to have a conversation with them. And I don't blame them. They're conservative. And I don't mind if you're conservative or not. You know, communism took over Vietnam and the devastation, right, in the concentration camp. So I see I see that. I would never understand what they went through. Right? I want to say that first. But there's a. it comes to a moment of time when they're being very hypocritical. When Trump became president, these people are like, oh, see, we're the good refugees. Right? We are the good refugees. Those refugees are the bad refugees. And it's like, but people didn't want us when we were here at first, right? When people didn't want the Vietnamese refugees here. When I heard that, it was so shocking. And... No, there's a lot of rhetoric like Biden's a communist. Basically, looking back to like 1973, 1975, there are some actions he did that they use against him. This the political climate is very, it's very tough. They're very anti-China, right? I, I, there's a history of that. But there's sometimes common sense don't really make sense for them no more, and it gets very, it gets very irritating. Hmm. How have you wrestled with that? I, I think it's a bit hard. It's a bit hard for me to wrestle because. There's times I don't want to, to focus on them, right? There's times I don't want to talk to them, to have dialogue. Where I, I just, I don't want to, I don't want to reconnect with them again. I feel they're pushing me away again. I really want to reconnect with the, the, the community. Yeah. How has ethnic studies played a part in you trying to get closer to some of their perspectives? Well, I think ethnic studies did help me with a heal, a heal for me, right? For my, for my culture and to know my history and to try to be empathetic to to the perspective, like, I'm open to have a conversations, really open to have a conversation with people, like, if you're conservative, okay, I don't mind, like, I really don't, like, but, but, but I think I have that privilege to say that, right, because people, it's very hard to do it to the other side, because a lot of trauma has happened in communities, 
But I think for me, I had that luxury or that privilege to, to really be empathetic to hear what they went through, right? Because I feel like people have different experiences where they come from. And I think like it's very hard though, because when we talk about a structure of uh, oppression or uh, military intervention with Vietnam, it, it gets very difficult because people saw North Vietnam or they call it uh, the Vietcom, right? Or the VCs. They saw them as liberators, right? Freedom fighters. This is where I get difficulties with seeing that because I'm here in the United States and the South Vietnam was lost. What my dad went through, my parents went through and we lost, people say we lost our country. Now the anti-war movement, right? The anti-war movement comes in and I feel sometimes maybe some will argue that the anti-war movement and the media really portrays South Vietnam as wrong and it's taking a lot of for me, information to try to find out what happened to Vietnam War. I think I've been trying to figure out is the media did really portray us wrongly, right, during the war and see them as freedom fighters, right? Not as freedom fighters. It's, 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 it's very difficult to be to comprehend because at the end, people died, right? Both sides died and more Vietnamese people died. I think maybe millions of people, Vietnamese people died than Americans. And it's just so complex to see the anti-war movement that had, you know, uh, Muhammad Ali was really well known to speak out against the anti-war movement, right? He, he would rather go to jail, I, did, I believe, to go to Vietnam. MLK started to become more vocal. And Huey Newton, I think, part of the Black Panther Party, I think he wrote a letter to the to North Vietnam or the VCs about wanting to help them, right? And I get, I get so comprehended because I think I grew up a lot with hearing the, the anti-communist rhetoric, right? I grew up hearing like that we fought a just cause. And, and I, I really believe so. And I, it's just so hard to, to comprehend about capitalism, communism, socialism, and all these topics. And I feel I'm in a very rough position, a very rough position with badly with, with ethnic studies, right? I'm like, oh, like, what is the legit history of what happened in Vietnam? Because even still this day, I think there's a lot of misinformation of what happened, right? And I think that's very interesting. But, you know, I'm still... I'm learning, relearning a lot on the war. Mm. After having learned so much about ethnic studies, and how do you look back on your childhood now? How do you look back on your communities? I think that's a very complex question. <laughs> very complex question. I, I look back, I, I love my community. East Island is my home. Despite everything I went through, I, I, I love my community. I don't want to say, like, I don't want to, I want to change everything. But yeah, I, I just wouldn't, right? I think the beauty of growing up in, a, in this community is our culture. Our culture got wealth. The community culture wealth. And as you see the beauty, our aspirations, our hopes and dreams, and the beauty of our families, right? We try to be connected. The work I'm doing today with trying to do bridge two communities, even though the difficulties to my friends that they pass away or were incarcerated or go to jail, I have nothing against them. I never will. It's not my place to, to judge what happened, right? Because they were going through a lot of stuff, a lot of issues in the household that I did not know as a kid until they told me recently. So overall, I'm happy uh, I can look about my channel. You know, I grew up here. I know I grew up in San Jose. I hope to die in San Jose as well. <laughs> yeah, that's great. So tell me more about what you're doing now. Well, right now, I'm at the University of San Francisco for my uh, Master of Arts in Teaching in Urban Education and Social Justice. I'm trying to be a future teacher in social sciences back in East San Jose and uh, activism or politics. Trying to speak up more against injustices that the Vietnamese community have wrongs about. Uh, what made you feel like you wanted to be a teacher? Yeah, so this is my why. Okay, <laughs> so my why for teaching... <sighs> This back to my childhood. Growing up, I remember someone said, you know, y'all not supposed to graduate high school. Y'all are destined for prison. I remember that. Mm. I remember that phrase. For me, I was like, what? Really? Like, 
you say this as, as kids, right? Like, no, we're little kids. Like, we're just here for prison. Yeah. And it did happen, right? I see my mm-hmm. friends happen. And in high school, I saw maybe I want to be a teacher. Because, right? you know, some teachers helped me in my life, right? During that rough time. And it wasn't until I was doing biology, right? I really love biology. Biology is amazing, you know? Like, the sciences are amazing. Like, forensic science and biology is just amazing. And uh, when I was tutoring biology, I first knew before I could tutor the subject, I had to know who my students were. Like, who are they? The community they come from and what's their hopes and dreams, right? And their passions. Yeah. Just in high school, I, I knew that already. I saw the beauty of, of improving, right? Because, you know, they say, oh, these kids are failing. You know, quote, quote, they're failing. And the students I had it all passed with this year better, right? And I think the work I was doing uh, with talking about autobiographies or just checking questions, oh, like, who's your favorite artist or what's happening new? That helped a bit. At that moment, I was like, whoa, this is amazing work. And maybe I want to go to teaching teach back here at East San Jose because sometimes it takes the hood to nurture the hood, you know? Yeah. So that's why I wanted to be a teacher. Some of the teachers that you said you grew up with that made a big difference, uh, who were they? What were they like? Yeah, uh, my fifth grade teacher, she was just an amazing teacher. She was just so caring. Uh, she really saw determination with me, right? So I really value her. She was just loving, very loving person. And you know, and she knew, she knew my dad too, right? So sometimes my dad would just come by, right? My dad, her and I would just just talk about what whatever in life, mm. and uh, she was just she was just so caring, right? I, I just felt that like if I go into problems, I told her, and she's like, okay, like okay, like how can I help? And I I still talk to her to this day. I still talk to her to this day. So I appreciate the fifth grade teacher, and I think another one is my uh, my physio teacher in high school. He was a well known teacher in my school. You know, people see you as a more elderly person. I think he was about 50, 50 or 60. I don't know. I forgot how old he was. But he was just so cool. Like, he was just like, he was just hella. For me, he was really funny. But he felt, I, I don't want to call my grandpa. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I don't want to call my grandpa. But people saw him as like a more like, you know, he's so kind, right? Really. He would tell stories like how he would help shelters and how he would go to Ethiopia to open schools and help with the children in Ethiopia. Wow, yeah. And I think... One of the best parts with him was we still connect to this day. And one of the best parts was he attended my mom's funeral. Mm. And I was like, wow, he's legit, <laughs> you know? <laughs> so those are the teachers I had. I felt that cared. Well, I'm not sure about care. Well, care and love is different, I think. Maybe they love our, the students, right? I don't know. I can't speak for them, but I felt they just cared and loved their students. Is there anything that you learned from them that you want to incorporate in your own teaching? Just loving my students, right? like who they are, their identities, and to really get to know my students and to just try to be there for my students as I could, right? But I, I, don't know how, I don't know how things are going to work out in the future, right? Like, don't just leave my, like, you know, for lunch or brunch or whatever, just my doors open, right, if you want to come in or anything. I think that's what I learned most, to really care and to love for their students. Oh, that's beautiful. Just really making a safe space for these kids and really having someone who believes in them. I feel like that means so, so much. And I'm so excited for your future students. It's funny because we've had another teacher on this show, but his story coming from a more East Asian American background sounds so different from your story coming from a Southeast Asian background where your parents were refugees. And it's it's just such a different upbringing, such a different context. Yeah, I think you bring up a great point. The differences are between Southeast Asians or East Asians or just growing low income, right? They're growing low income with less resources, which is like a middle class, higher class, and just a different of, I don't want to say different values, I think, uh, what we were exposed to. I mean, I, I don't want to say I was exposed to more, because but people would say that 
oh, if you go over like more in the hood or something, you're exposed to a lot of like a lot of stuff, right? Like, it's not normal to see shootings. Like, it shouldn't be that normal, right? And to see yeah. that and to really have that uh, have that fear, because I still have fear in my life. Like, oh, like, what's gonna happen? Or like, you know, just when a car drives by, like, like uh, you know, I have that that tension of it, but. Uh, there is a difference, right? There is a lot of differences, I would say. Like, values of what is probably, like, model minority or affirmative action. Like, I didn't really know much about that. Because, you know, when people ask me that, I was like, I don't know much, right? I don't know much about, about that because I was here to survive. I just wanted to survive, right? And mm-hmm. I don't, I'm not worried about affirmative action or model minority, right? I, I'm just worried about that food, <laughs> like, home and, like, my friends are alive or I'm alive. Yeah. So that's just... The difference is that maybe I feel like we talk about policing, right? You know, people some schools don't have, you know, in the rich or wealthier don't have policing, right? And I, oh, we have policing, right? And right, another interesting fact is that I, I searched for police a couple of times in my life, right? Mm. So I have we have policing or we have military that want to recruit us, right? In our income schools, but in terms of maybe with school, I think maybe both are similar with like doing the best we could, right? Like going to a top school, but I feel like. There's more, maybe more intensity in a wealthier school to be the best of the best, maybe, right? Or like going to like the Ivy Leagues, maybe. Like that's why I've been hearing like there's a lot of stress on Ivy Leagues for like more resources on like SATs or anything like that. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's almost two different worlds. And I guess that's the complicated part of having something just blanket labeled Asian American or Asian American Pacific Islander, because within that umbrella, there's just so many different worlds of experience. And so uh, thank you so much for sharing all of that, Alex. And any parting thoughts for the podcast? Yeah, um, it's a time of pandemic, right? It's, I know it's very difficult what's happening in this world. So the time is to you know, just reach, reach out to one another, right? Because we're going through a difficult time. And to remember that to people out there that are listening, there will hopefully be light at the end of the tunnel, right? Mm. Or for what, what Tupac would say is, for every dark night, there's a brighter day. And I think I really meant to see, uh, to remember that y'all are sacred, right? That we're all sacred people in this world. Don't forget that. Mm. It's a beautiful message. I think we'll end right there. Thank you so much, Alex, for being a part of Misfortune Cookies. And I am so, so grateful to have had this conversation with you today. Hey, thanks for listening to the Misfortune Cookies podcast. If you'd like to say hi, drop us a note, send us an email at misfortunecookiespodcast at gmail.com. Till next time, take care. Bye.